Thank you for listening to Cure the Culture with Nia and Ebony. On this podcast, we facilitate conversations about health in the Black community and answer your questions through a research-based lens. We create a safe haven for Black patients and Black healthcare professionals to share their unique medical journeys. Tune in now for guidance, personal stories, and the latest research on everything Black health. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cure the Culture with Ebony. Hi, everyone. And Nia. I hope everybody's having an amazing week. I'm actually in Aruba, so that's amazing. I'm here for a wedding. Eb, you're completely not in New Jersey right now, so where are you? I am not in New Jersey. I'm in Houston. Wow. This is the best thing about having a podcast is we can be anywhere in the country and still be recording. So awesome. This is kind of the way of the future, I know. right? Especially with telehealth and everything. It's perfect. So we have here with us today, we have Deneen Rogers. She is a registered dietitian and licensed nutritionist. And she's going to be joining us. And so Eva's going to do our introduction. Yes, we're very excited to have Deneen with us today to talk more about nutrition and food as medicine. Me and Nia, we always talk about this. And we're foodies. Yes, we are. It's a week before Thanksgiving and this is perfect timing. Exactly, because everyone's going to be eating and it's going to be communal eating. So, you know, there's like this secret competition around the dinner table who's going to have the most. You unbutton your pants at the end of the night because it's so (laughs) tight, right? Yeah. Or you just wear spandex. You just wear spandex. (laughs) That's holiday eating. But we also want to have a larger conversation about nutrition in the Black community, food deserts, what it means to be a Black nutritionist. I don't actually have access to any Black nutritionists in my area. So I'm just super excited to have Deneen. So Eb, go ahead. As soon as you're ready, let's do. So Deneen Rogers is an integrative and functional registered licensed dietitian nutritionist and owner of Living Healthy, which is a nutrition, health, and wellness consulting business in Douglasville, Georgia. She is a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, HBCU graduate of Howard University with a bachelor's degree in clinical nutrition and has completed her master's degree in complementary and alternative medicine. A graduate certificate in herbal medicine at American College of Health and Sciences also complements her degrees. She is also the past chair of NOBIDAN, which is an acronym for National Organization of Blacks in Dietetics and Nutrition. Am I saying that correctly? Dietics? Dietetics? That's a fun word for me. (laughs) I know. I think dietetics, but we'll get it from the expert. Dietetics. (laughs) Visit her website at www.livinghealthyone.org and you can contact her via email at consulting at livinghealthyone.org. Deneen, we're so glad to have you. So happy to have you, Deneen. Thank you so much for joining us, Ms. Rogers. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. (laughs) And can I say you do have a perfect voice for this? Such a radio voice. Such a radio voice, if you've never been told that before. It was funny because everybody says you have a look for TV and you have a very calming voice. So I was like, wow, I'm a shot. You could do ASMR with that voice. Yes, you could. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ms. Janine, what inspired you to be a nutritionist? Because let me tell you, can I tell you a little dirty secret about medical school and PA school? We only take about... I would probably say one course in nutrition. I think that's really telling because food is medicine. And I think that if you're eating healthy, if you have access to the right healthy foods, then a lot of these processes don't really catch up to you. So what inspired you to be a nutritionist? What really got those gears going for you? Yeah. Well, it's funny that you brought that up because a lot of times doctors only take it as an elective. 
Mm, that's the truth. Uh, well, what happened was, is that I kind of got into the profession sort of when I was in high school. I had an incredible opportunity as a student intern during the summertime at General Foods, which is now called Kraft General Foods. I'm originally from upstate New York. Well, not would say upstate, it's downstate, everybody calls it. White Plains, New York, which is Westchester County. Oh, I'm familiar yeah. with White Plains. Yeah. Of course we are. We know where Westchester yeah, we is. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've been in traffic in Westchester, New York. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It's changed. It's changed. <laughs> but Kraft General Foods used to be there, but now they moved down to Illinois. But during that time, it was just called General Foods. And I had the chance to work at the Consumer Affairs Department and the Food Test Kitchen. This is where all the dietitians work. So this was my first time ever hearing what is a dietitian and just having a chance to work with them. These were corporate dietitians, they call them. So they were like, people call them upscale dietitians. Wow. I didn't even know this field existed. I didn't either. I did not. I was in shock. So some of their work that they did was that, as you know, General Foods, they do grape nuts, jello pudding. Those are some of the products that they did and they still do. But they answer a lot of the questions in nutrition for the consumers. So during that time period when I was there, which many moons ago, we didn't email because we didn't have email during that time. So we had to open up the letters and handwrite them back. The answers to their questions about a lot of our products that we had, nutritional questions. So sometimes you get some interesting stuff that was mailed back like, Some people may say, well, I had some foreign objects in my food and they would bring those back. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Not good. (laughs) No, not good at all. We also performed like surveys. We did focus groups. We write articles, nutritional advice. They used to have like a healthy newsletter for the department. They used to send it out to a lot of the customers who requested. And then we also made like different recipes for new products in the test kitchen. So Those were some of the things that the dietitians did in that specific department. And it also gave me a chance to really look into more of interest into that area. I was really, really blessed for the fact that the person who was the vice president of consumer affairs was the first black vice president of Kraft General Foods. And I was under her. She was my mentor and I was her mentee. So she gave me the chance to just see the corporate environment as being a Black woman and being exposed to it. She was so interested in me learning more about dietetics because she said she never met a Black dietitian. And she saw that I was very much interested when I came there. So she gave me a chance to be interviewed by the local paper. And they came to my house and I made them my homemade pizza. And they took pictures of it. I still got the picture. Still have the article. Yes, of the article. (laughs) Do you see how important it is to see yourself in like a higher position? I think people often underwrite that as something that you see someone else excelling in something that maybe is more niche or nuanced that you've never heard of before, but you see that they've made a career out of it for themselves. So then that inspires you. And then they also pushing you along the way and encouraging you, which is amazing. Yeah, she's still here alive. And she's an amazing person. I've always admired her for her reaching out and giving back to the community and helping the youth. And that was her thing. She wanted us to excel. She wanted us to go beyond where she has gone. And she was just a very powerful-minded, excellent leadership skills that she had. And she also gave me like the discipline to work hard for what you want 
and never give up at anything that you do. And I appreciate when her name is Paula Sneed and she's still mm, here. Yeah. Shout out to Paula. <laughs> yes, hi Paula. <laughs> so she's been truly a blessing and she lives in Chicago now. Wow. Great. Wow. That's invaluable. You seeing someone that was excelling in nutrition, why do you think that it's important to see more Black nutritionists? Because if we think about Black nutritionists, there's only about 3% of you in the country, which I know you said many, many moons ago, you had someone who inspired you, but still today we only have about 3% of all practicing licensed dietitians and nutritionists are Black. So why is it important, do you think, to just have access to Black nutritionists and for more people to go to school to pursue this as a career? Well, just to let you know that, unfortunately, it went down a bit. It's now 2.6. Wow, that's not good. Yes. And I know I'll be talking a little bit more about the organization that was now past chair of Nobi Dan, a little bit more detail what we've been doing to get more and more of us Black dietitians, well, Blacks to become dietitians in the field. But as you probably know, unfortunately, the sad statistic is that there's so much unequal burdens of illness, disproportion of outcomes, health outcomes. And I just recently saw this quote from the United States that by 2050, there's going to be an estimated that 54% of the population will comprise of ethnic and racial minorities. And that's why it's so important for the Black dietitians to be a part of the nutritional field. And also, unfortunately, in our field, the 77% of the dietitians are Caucasian. Wow. Yeah. So the issues are, is that there's another research that's been done that's shown that a lot of people from the BIPOC community, and you guys already know about the BIPOC community already in the U.S., unfortunately, they're the ones who mostly experience more food insecurities in Caucasian communities. As you know, a lot of the chronic diseases, unfortunately, is in our area, which is number one in communities of color. And for us dietitians, we're there to inform them and help them to get through some of these disparities. And if we are not very culturally sensitive, we're basically causing the problem. There's also been a study where they noticed that a lot of people who are the same race and same ethnicity, and they prefer healthcare professionals who are same race and same ethnicity. And what that does is that they notice that that improves time for the patient to feel more comfortable and letting them know what's going on with their health. It allows them to have better treatment decisions. It also allows them to share decision-making systems because, hey, if you speak to someone that looks like you and sounds like you and understands where you're coming from, you feel more comfortable and you're willing to have less bias and less racial disparities going on. And people of color understand that, hey, you know, I go through myself going through the healthcare system, going through a lot of health disparities. So if you have someone that looks like you and understands where you're coming from, you feel more comfortable in giving out more information and then your treatment will be a lot better. So as being a dietitian, it's important for dietitians to learn about and understand about cultural foods. Being a Black dietitian, we understand that know about the social and economic statuses and disparities that goes on, employment, access of food, and also providing budget-friendly nutritious foods. So that would cause for us Blacks being a part of the nutritional field and being dietitians, it would cause a tremendous positive outcome to a lot of these health disparities that are going on. Thank you, Ms. Rogers. I will say when I think about a dietitian or a registered nutritionist, 
or licensed nutritionist. I think about Instagram. I think about smoothies. I think about granola bars. I think about, unfortunately, a lot of the marketing for dietitians is very centered around the Caucasian population. Health and wellness is in general, yoga, you see all these images in your head, sandy beaches, ocean shores, I'm in Aruba, these exotic resorts, and people think that healthy food is tied to being expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the barrier of care is sometimes they just don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, but also it's how much is that going to cost me? And I agree with you, Ms. Rogers, having someone who is Black even if they don't come from the same socioeconomic status, sometimes you just have that buy-in of your patients trusting you just a little bit more. Do you have that experience with your patients and your clientele that you see that if you see a person of color who's coming in with a referral or just coming in for preventative care, do you see that they have a better buy-in with you than they might with another provider? Yes. And in actuality, my full-time job, I work in telehealth, so I don't see my patients, but my private practice, I do physically see them. And it's funny because a lot of times they always tell us what race who we're talking to and what ethnicity. And a lot of times the Black patients that I speak to always ask me, you sound Black, are you Black? (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, I'm only talking to them on the phone system like we're doing right now through a podcast. You can tell though, it's a warmth (laughs) in the voice. And I said, yes, I am. And I'm proud of it. And they said, I'm glad you are because now I can let you know how I really feel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah about this plan about that you have me thing on. I'm going on. That wall comes down and they're really honest. That's great for medical compliance too, just anything. It is. I think it's important for building trust too, because it's not someone that may not understand the nuances of a cookout or the nuances of a family gathering and Mm -hmm. what's going to be bought into the home and what you might already have in your home and why you have it. And so I just think it's an amazing thing. So when you were the co-chair or chair for the team that was a part or the committee that's a part of recruiting Black nutritionists, what was kind of the barriers for Black nutritionists to kind of enter the field? Was it that no one knew what a nutritionist is? Because I think a lot of my patients, unfortunately, when I see them and when I have a patient, because I see mostly pediatric patients and I see them and they have, let's say, obesity or they have fatty liver disease or they have gastric reflux disease and I want to refer them to a nutritionist, that is always sometimes the last thing that we're doing. Like that's like our last ditch effort where I think in medicine, we really need to take the approach of really using food as a medicine and a way to treat a lot of these things preventatively before we even need to introduce pharmaceutical drugs. So my question for you is, at what point do you see your patients? Is it usually referral-based? Do some people seek you out? And also, why is it that people don't know Black people are not going into the field of nutrition? Well, I think that a lot of times we just don't know that this specific area exists. I didn't know, and even though I was very young, I just happened to stumble upon it. And that's what I noticed that when I speak to other Black dietitians, that they sometimes, a lot of times, they just stumbled on the field. They usually was told, be a chef, be a cook, but not a dietitian. And then they just stumble upon that once they do further research on it. And I know that we are trying the best that we can to get that word out, particularly within our communities, that we do exist, that we are not unicorns. I even have one person came up to me and says, you're a Black dietitian. I said, yes. And they said, can I take a picture of you? I said, why? (laughs) I said, because I've never seen one before. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's also like there are these huge universities out here that their focus is nutrition and they're known. Tufts is one specifically that I can think of. 
they're known specifically for nutrition. And a large part of my referrals that I do make are for my Hispanic, Latino, Black, BIPOC community. Yet, if that's the majority of my referrals being placed, especially in the indigenous community that I serve, what are the barriers for those universities to really reach out and try to grab nutritionists from these areas and to highlight the fact that we need more nutritionists that are Black or that are Indigenous or that are Hispanic, that are people of color? Well, it's funny that you bring that up because myself, I was the chair of the National Organization of Blacks and Dietetics and Nutrition. And these were some of the questions that we brought up during my term, which was last year, was during the George Floyd riots and also during the COVID and the economic strife. A lot of people wouldn't think that we as an organization went through that also within the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics. We had to basically let them know, hey, you know what? There's something wrong here. Why is it our area and our communities are being hit very hard with COVID? And why is there not that many Black dietitians? It used to be with the HBCUs, we had a lot of HBCUs that had the dietetic program. But as soon as certain amounts of students did not pass the exam, they shut down the curriculums. And that's what's caused a lot of our people not to go into the field because a lot of times we don't really go into the high schools and educate them and tell them, hey, you know what? I'm a Black dietitian. Let me teach you and show you what I do. Also, the HBCUs don't have a lot of the programs. It's only about 12 out of the whole entire nation. And then also, I know in the Caribbean too, that there's not that many type of curriculums that deal with nutrition and dietetics. And yet, we're the ones who have the most disease and also burden, right? Disease burden type of nutrition type of illnesses, which can be prevented. These things are some of the issues that we have brought up within the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics. Right now, they are working on trying to do more videos, more cultural sensitive videos to show students in high school that this profession does exist and that we want them and that we need them and that we are here to guide them. Us as the National Organization of Blacks and Dietetics and Nutrition, we have been helping our students in passing the RD exam, which is a major exam in order to get licensed and get registered as a dietitian. We also have been helping and trying to recruit more and more students into the field. So we have been doing what we can. We still have a lot more to do. And I think that the fact is, is that we just can't be saying like, go see a nutritionist. There's a difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian. It's the education and the experience and the research that a dietitian does. We have like about five years of education. Right. right now in 2024, you have to get a graduate degree in becoming a dietitian, which we're kind of not happy about. We believe that in order to get a graduate degree, the rate of pay should go up too. Right. I agree. Yeah. So these are some of the things that we are going through right now, trying to make the field more marketable. But we also got to take care of what's going on within our organization itself. Janine, I really like how candid you're being about what the barriers are. And for me, it's giving systemic oppression, medical Mm -hmm. racism. But I really like the empowering things that it seems like you're doing with your career, especially when it comes to bridging that gap between alternative and modern medicine. And also something really interesting you do with gardening, us being involved in 
the planning instead of always the process. Like you said, they always want us to be cooks and chefs, but not necessarily involved in the food itself from the beginning, which is actually a really strong place to be. Can you talk a little bit about how that could be great for the Black community, gardening and things like that? Yeah, and I think that particularly with a lot of the food disparities that's going on, like a lot of the rural areas may not have access to healthy foods or grocery stores. There's so many food deserts going on in our urban communities and very little access to fresh fruits and vegetables. The gardening that I did within a school, which was the elementary school, yes. What happened was, is that unfortunately, one of the teachers passed away and she had a garden. She made a garden near the school. So what happened was, is that the food service manager there wanted a dietitian to explain about gardening and teaching her students about gardening. Myself, I am a volunteer master gardener for the state of Georgia. Master. (laughs) Master gardener. Master gardener, yeah. (laughs) And I just want to let people know that if you do want a volunteer master gardener to get more volunteer hours, they can come to your house and help you out with your garden too. Wow, that's nice. But going back to what I was saying before, one of the things is, is that we were able to help the students to make their own garden on the school premises. So it was good teaching the elementary students about gardening. It showed them that, hey, you know, I can make one at my own yard. Some of them even took some of the information that I was teaching them and showing them how to make tomatoes and different blueberries and stuff like that. And they took it home and they have their own gardens with their parents. So that's one of the things I think is great is a community garden, particularly in the urban areas and also in the rural areas. And not only that, that community garden also brings the community closer together. And I noticed that a lot of community gardens are growing up in places that people would never, ever think that they would. And I think that that's great because it brings the community back together. And not only that, it also allows the community to grow and allow people to work with one another and also make the community a better environment, too. And I also think it teaches about food, right? So when you're gardening, you're really teaching someone the nutritional component of what it is to have a fruit and a vegetable and why it's important. And when you're taking care of something, there's pride in that. And then you take that home and you're eating it. There's nothing like that in the world. I think it also starts, like you were saying, in schools, how your organization is trying to go to schools. Because I think when you're actually teaching children, other cultures, especially all over the world, what you learn about nutrition and what you should and should not be eating is at home. And so what I try to instill in my parents is when they come in and they say we're having issues as a family losing weight, it's usually not specifically just the kid Uh who's coming in. It's the entire family that needs help. I always tell them, you know, it's baby steps and it's eliminating, and I wouldn't even say eliminating, but it's watching your consumption of particular things as a whole, as a whole group. So processed foods, trying to understand why necessarily that may not be as healthy for you as something that you've actually either grown or that you've bought that you know is at least locally sourced. But like you said, there are food deserts. So sometimes it's just people don't have the access to those fresh fruits and vegetables. But you teaching them why it's important in the schools, it's incredible. Because Ebony, do you remember in high school, did we have a nutrition class? I don't remember. We did. I took it. (laughs) I think I did home ec. (laughs) Yeah. They didn't call it home ec. It was food and nutrition. That was our home ec. So they taught us about the pyramid. I think it was a pyramid at the time. At that time, yeah. Definitely changed. Plate now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Much better. I think that it starts there, 
but also what you learn at home, what's reinforced at home, I think is a lot of the time. So how do you go about teaching your patients, specifically you, let's say a patient comes in, they're referred to you from a doctor's office or they come in to your office or they email you. What are the steps? Let's say their issue is weight loss or obesity, which we know is tied to diabetes, heart disease, a bunch of different peripheral vascular disease. You can name anything, high blood pressure that food is tied to. How do you go about, let's say they're just coming in and their goal is to lose weight. And I want you to talk about that too, because a lot of patients, their goal is losing weight, but I try to reframe that or they want to put their kids on a diet. I really don't like that verbiage. I want people to just learn how to eat healthier given what they have access to. Teach us too, as <laughs> providers too, how do you go about coaching or educating your patients about what healthy choices are and why we should make them? Well, I'm glad you asked. And this goes to where I went basically as an integrated functional dietitian, which is entirely different from allopathic. We look at the person as a whole. We look at their body, mind, social life, mental health, and well-being. And so people say, well, why would a nutritionist look at all of that? All of that encompassed with food. Everything that we deal with always comes back to food. Whenever we're seeing family, what's the first thing we say? Let's go out to eat. Exactly. It's a coping skill. Exactly. So everything encompasses with food. So taking my profession with my private practice, I do two different things. I do the allopathic for the insurance because that's what they bill us for. But the integrative functional medicine one, I do it for basically for everybody, but really specifically for those who do want to pay out of pocket through HSAs or through basically FSAs. But what I do is that I try to get them to understand the deep issues. Like, let's say if they have a gut issue, I try to get them to understand, well, why is your gut causing you this issue? And they say, well, because I eat something bad and it causes me this, not to be graphic, but a lot of bowel movement, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, symptoms, bloating and uncomfortability and gas and pain right. and cramping and diarrhea. So as an allopathic dietitian, we might say, okay, if you're having like, let's say constipation, just eat a high fiber diet and go. And that's it. But it's not going to really solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is that I get them to understand, okay, well, let's go in deeper. What is causing this gut issue? When you feel this gas, what are you doing at that time? Are you stressed out? Are you eating the wrong types of food? What kind of foods are you eating? What foods do you like? I don't believe, like you said, in diets. I believe in lifestyle management plans. And that's the only way that someone can really recover from what they're going through. If you say, okay, here's a diet, let's say caloric diet, like a 1500 calorie diet plan. Do you really think that someone's going to stick with it? No. There are some that will, but there are a lot that won't because it's a lot of the stuff is on there. It's not things that they're familiar of eating. So if you're dealing with someone that's from a different culture and you tell them, okay, here, this is a 1500 calorie diet plan. You follow and eat these foods specifically and measure them out and you will lose weight. Well, they're not going to follow it because a lot of the foods may not be something that their culture accepts or it's something that they will like to eat. So the thing is, is that it's also not just finding out what foods that they like to eat, but it's also finding out their relationship with foods. I've had many patients that said that whenever I'm stressed out, I would go into the kitchen and eat a loaf of bread. So there's an issue. You know, we can't say just don't eat carbs. Right. Because when you take stuff out, you're going to crave for it more and then you're going to eat more. Or you're going to substitute it with something that's worse or a large amount of something that would be ideally healthier. 
but a large amount of it is not necessarily going to make it healthy just because it's labeled as healthy. I think we use food as, like Ebony was saying, as a coping skill a lot. 95%. Yes. 95% of serotonin is producing your GI. So that's not even a joke. That's science. Yeah. So I think a lot of us, when we're eating, it's more than just something that we just do to do it. It's something that we do because we really enjoy it. The textures, the taste of it, even the smells when you're cooking and you're starting to smell and visualize your food. It's a whole process. So it's such a barrier for my patients because I feel like I'm trying to teach them what necessarily might be healthy or what they should be cutting out. And I'm wondering, is there a specific way you get buy-in from your patients? You start by what do they like to eat? And then how do you make it so that they can be successful? And I also want you to talk about resilience as a patient, because I think sometimes patients think that, oh, because I had a bad day or I ate this, now my whole plan for healthy leaving is done. And then they start to really go down this spiral. Yeah. Whereas necessarily it should just be like, I had some things that I maybe necessarily were not healthy for me today, but tomorrow's a new day. And tomorrow I can make different choices that might be more healthy and more aligned with where I want to be in the future. And I think about if we look at food from that perspective versus a diet, because diet sounds so restrictive. And I think that when you're restricting someone, it just makes it even better to, to, <laughs> to go inside of those guidelines that you've set. And it makes it even more enticing to do it. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you're noticing the ice cream shops and the candy more than you ever would because someone said that you shouldn't necessarily have those things. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you keep your patients on the right track and how you motivate your patients and people who are struggling with weight or with their blood sugar, how they can start to look at food differently? Mainly, I tell them that, you know, hey, we're all human. There's times that, hey, you know what? You happen to go on a cruise and you saw these delicious foods on there. Then you come back and it's like, oh gosh, I just kind of overindulge. And I usually tell them, I said, well, you know, you're human. That's okay. Just say yourself, all right, you know, this happened and then let's move on and let's try to find out why is it that whenever I go on vacation, why do I overindulge? Why do I do this type of thing? And that's the whole idea. It's a lot of psychology. And then also, you know, a lot of times as professionals, we usually try to get the person to open up, but sometimes we do it kind of wrong. Using those things to get to know them, get to know who they are as a person, I think, and their lifestyle. I know that we're only allowed to see them for a certain period of time, but you can get so much information in a short period of time. Some of the behavioral modifications and motivational interviewing stuff that we usually do. You can get a lot out of the patient to learn more about it. And you're there to be encouragement. I always told my patients, I said, you are the driver in this driver's seat. I'm not the driver. And whatever you do is going to be all right. It's going to be okay. I'm here to help you along the way. I'm here to not be in front or be the person that's going to guide you. I'm here to help you along the way to make you successful to where you want to be. Just having that trust. I think that trust factor makes a total difference. If you don't have that trust, they will just shut down. They will not work with you. And I also think in medicine, we have a terrible habit of just being like, the first thing you do when you come into our office is get weighed. And there's this fear of even going to the doctor's office because then you're going to know your weight and then it's going to stick with you the whole day. I know so many people who say that they will not come to the doctor because they know that they've gained weight and they know their doctor is going to have a conversation with them about it. How can providers go about having conversations with patients about their weight that is appropriate? We in medicine, especially Western medicine, we want everybody to fit into a box. You have to be this BMI below this, but above this, because we want your cardiovascular and your overall health and we want you to have longevity. 
that's important. I think there is something to say about that. But I also think there is something to say about being sensitive about the fact that weight is a struggle that I think now over 60% of our population has. And so we have to learn how to have these conversations in a productive way. So you said motivational interviewing, but what is the advice when you're approaching weight from a medical profession and we're about to bridge this person into a nutritionist or we've talked to them about their weight and weight management, what is the best way to go about doing that in a productive way without hurting our patients' feeling or making them feel little or making them feel like every complaint they have is related to their weight? Because I don't necessarily think those things are true either. How do we do that? How do we get them motivated? Is it just about the approach that we're taking? How do we get people not to avoid their doctor's office because they've gained 15 pounds and they feel <laughs> bad about it? Right. And I usually tell them sometimes I don't go based on the numbers on the scale. I go based on the clothes method, how your clothes feel on you and fit on you. I don't try to tell them that because sometimes with the scale, you know, a lot of us have different bone structures. A lot of us have different body structures. A lot of us are not supposed to be a size zero or size one. I try to take the person for where they are right now. And I ask them, what would you want to do and how you want to do it and get them to feel more confident in themselves? I said, it's not about a number. That's the whole thing. It's about how you feel, how healthy you feel. I've had many a patients that were skinny as a rail <laughs> and had heart disease. Yeah. While I had someone that was over 300 pounds and had no health issues whatsoever. So it's based on genetics. And that's when a lot of things in the integrative functional medicine area, we talked a lot about nutrigenomics, which is nutrition based on the genetics and it's based on your genetic profile. So like if you have a family member that has cardiovascular disease, you may have that. So what ways can you do to prevent that? And that's where you have to learn how to, okay, maybe I'm going to have to cook a little differently. Maybe I'm not going to have to add a lot of butter into my food or add more non-starchy vegetables into my foods. And also try to find foods and dishes that taste good. And I think that a lot of times we do it based on taste. I had one patient that came to me and said, well, I don't want to speak to you because you're going to take everything and make it taste terrible. <laughs> That's a real fear. <laughs> That's a real fear. And I can understand that because fortunately us dietitians, we're called the food police. Mm -hmm. And we're not there to police people on food. We're there to just to help them and educate them. And we're here to encourage. We're here to empower them. We don't want to take stuff away from you. We want to show you, hey, you know what? If you want to use butter, use a smaller amount. Don't dump the whole thing in there. If you want to use olive oil, the same thing, use a smaller amount, even though it's a healthier oil. The worst thing to do is take something away and punish the person like a child and like hitting on the hand. You're not supposed to do that, but you're there to help them along. And there are different ways that you can make some of the unhealthy foods to make them more healthy. And there's ways that you can work it together. And that's one of the things that I noticed that a lot of times as professionals, we don't really work together. We tell them, this is what we want you to do. It should be, mm -hmm. we work together. We come up with a decision together. Right, a collaborative decision. That's really what trauma-informed care, motivational interviewing, all of that is about. I mean, the first steps are validating. I get it. You're worried that your food's going to taste terrible. And then going into inviting them, like, here's what I do, or here's what some of my patients have done. And that's how you build that trust that you keep talking about. So really, I think providers just need to stay refreshed on how to do these skills, keep practicing 
these skills so they can become efficient at it. There's always this fear of wasting time in the office, and that's not necessarily going to happen. Mm-hmm. And taking people as an individual, that's another thing in integrative functional medicine is more individualized medicine. You can't clump everybody together. So you have to take them as an individual because someone who's a diabetic and usually doesn't exercise, and you have another diabetic that doesn't exercise, doesn't mean that they're both the same. They may have like this diabetic, even though they don't exercise, but they're willing to try different types of healthier foods or they're willing to count carbohydrates to keep track of their carbs. So everybody's different and it's important to take that individuality and use it and helping them as an individual. Because if you try to go there and say, okay, well, you know, here's another diabetic. Oh gosh, we're going to have to do the same thing all over again with that person. Every day I take a person individually and what they're going through. What has been your experience? Do most of your patients come to you because of a diagnosis or do some of them come to you trying to prevent a diagnosis? Let's say they have a long history of diabetes in their family or high blood pressure, which is a big one in the Black community, and they're aware of it. And they're saying to you, what can I do to lessen my chances of having this? Do you think it's a more reactive or proactive approach or do you think it's a more reactive approach when you see your patients? When you're referred to your patients, and it may be different because maybe your integrative medicine patients come to you preventatively, whereas maybe your referred patients come to you because they've been referred by their physician or healthcare provider. And you're correct. Okay. (laughs) I guess I don't have to answer it then. You're just right. You answered my answer. (laughs) You're correct. When we send you our patients, it's because we feel like, oh, we've done everything we can. And so now you have a diagnosis and you're being seen. What can we do to change that, Ms. Rogers? Because I would like my patients to feel empowered enough. And maybe we have to change the nutrition in the schools and really get the message out there about what it is to have a healthy lifestyle. Because how do we get our patients to understand that food really is the foundation for a lot of things and a lot of the diseases that we see? Well, I think that the fact that unfortunately in the U.S. we are a pill-popping society. Pharmaceutically driven. Exactly. Exactly. We feel like, okay, you know, if I have diabetes, oh, well, just have to take a medication or take insulin. I'll take metformin. It'll be gone. Right. And I don't have to change my diet. I don't have to exercise. I could just take insulin and just do it and I'll be fine because my doctor tells me to. And I think that that's also another thing that we have to educate our doctors. We have to educate them about the fact of nutrition is should be the first thing to do before medication. It should be the first thing as a preventative, not just only preventative, but also the first line of defense for helping our patients with their health. I think that the fact that it's important that every doctor should take a class in nutrition to understand why it's important and why nutrition is important. And like you said, what well, food is medicine. I think that a lot of our profession in the healthcare industry, we are very much pharmaceutical driven and a lot of patients feel like, okay, I'm only coming to the dietitian as a last resort or I'm coming to the dietitian because I've been bad. But can I talk to you about this, Ms. Rogers? Because I can't send (laughs) someone to you based off insurance companies if they do not have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that in itself, I think that is a large part of the problem is that I have to do off of my very limited, I don't have this five years of experience in all this research background that you do, Ms. Rogers, and I respect what you do. And I would rather you counsel my patients than me who spent a semester maybe learning about nutrition. And I can't send my patient to you without a diagnosis, an ICD-10 code attached to it. So they have to either have prediabetes, high blood pressure or obesity or fatty liver disease. Or a mental health diagnosis. 
And this is where the multimodal approach really comes in. We're not talking to each other. Because if you have something like anxiety, if you have something like depression, if you have things that have a psychosomatic component, that could actually be the bridge to proactive care before it gets intensely physical, before you develop GERD. Or overeating syndrome or binge eating. Let's do a single case agreement with a dietitian or a nutritionist and allow you to actually access those services through your insurance provider. I write those letters all the time. Yeah. But how many people ask me about that? How many people do I see that have eating disorders that actually refer to a dietitian or a nutritionist? A lot of people don't even know that that's something they can do. Exactly. Right. So it's not until my patients have a diagnosis that I've failed to address through our one-year or bi-yearly visits or bought them back for, seen them, counseled their family for, and I see that it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Then I say, okay, well, we have to send you to a nutritionist. And honestly, Deneen, I feel bad for sending you these patients. (laughs) Yeah, after the fact. After the fact. (laughs) After we've already, as a society, corrupted them. We've robbed them of their help as a society. It's not just their individual choices. And I think we demonize our patients by, well, you just need to do this. It's a lot harder to do that in the middle of the city. And we've talked about that, to access healthy foods and to have the money to do that. My question for you is, what do you do when you get my patient? How do you reteach them about food, about what it is and why it's important to watch what we're consuming? And what's your approach? Because I know every nutritionist and every dietitian has a different approach. Some people, it's all about the scale and the weight and other people, it's more like what you're saying and how do you feel? Where do you want to be at? But when you have a diagnosis like diabetes or fatty liver disease, how do you go about teaching them about food? Because a lot of my patients have no clue about the things that are in their food that they're pulling off of the shelf. And do you encourage your patients to eat at home versus going out to a restaurant? I know everyone's going to go out to eat. That's (laughs) part of living to life. But what would you say is the most healthy approach when they're trying to be conscious of what their intake is? Well, what I try to do is that first I ask, do you know really where your food is coming from? Yeah, that brings it back to gardening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also, it's important to know, I know that a lot of people say that, well, eating out is more convenient. But then I tell them, I say, okay, you just have to think about it. How many times do you really eat out? And is it really convenient to your health? Mm -hmm. You know, is it a detriment or is it positive? And even if you don't know how to cook, maybe this might be the time that you may want to learn. Even just doing like little baby steps. I think that that's the thing. You have to meet where the person is right now, even though you may say, okay, well, they should be over here, but that person may not be over there. So you got to meet where they are. If there's a person that said, well, I can only cook maybe once or twice out of the week. And I said, okay, that's fine. So if you're going to cook once or twice a week, why don't we try like what's called batch preparation where you pre-prep all your meals for the week and then you don't have to cook because all you got to do is shove it in the oven on the day of when you eat. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So so there you're meeting them a halfway and then they say, well, can I eat out maybe two or three times out of the week? And I say, okay, but let's choose healthier options. Where are the places that you like to eat out? And let's check out their menus, see what they have, know who the cook is. A lot of people don't know who's in the back room. Who's cooking your food? I don't know who's in the back room. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Honesty. (laughs) I don't. Yeah, see, you just don't know what they're doing to your food back there. Get that type of relationship. Try to get to know them. So these type of things, you know, you try to meet where the person is right now. You just can't say that, okay, I expect you to be over here while you're over there. So I'm just going to talk down to you and try to get you to come where you're supposed to be. 
that's not going to work. You have to meet where the person's at and try to accommodate them and help them and encourage them and just give them a little bit here and there. You shouldn't give them too much over information because if you do, you're going to lose them and they're not going to do anything. So you just have to do a little bit at a time. Every time, whenever I speak to a patient at the end of our consultation, I always ask them, based on everything that we discussed, what we did today, what would you feel be the best thing that you can do to make a change for yourself? Wow, that's empowering. Yeah. And they said, wow, I never really thought about that. You know, I learned so much. What can I do? I can possibly, let's say, I can just make a grocery list. And that person may have never, ever gone grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. They've probably been eating all out, but just making that one little change like that. Let me look at the food label and see what's on there. I never read a food label. I always picked on name brands. So just open them their eyes. Do they make food labels impossible to read on purpose? Tell me the truth, Miss Rogers. <laughs> because I have a hard time with it. Because it's like, you have to know this is 3% of sodium intake. You have to know what that means in the larger scale. What does 14 grams of sodium mean in a larger scale? Do you teach your patients about that? Yes. I want you to speak about that, about like decoding food labels. And this is why I think nutritionists, they're like the gatekeepers. To food science. To food science, exactly. (laughs) And that is a course that we do take. I love that. (laughs) So teach us a little bit about the labels on foods. What does it actually mean? and, And how do you explain it to your patients? I always tell patients that the front part is fair game for the market on the food manufacturers. They can write whatever they want in the front, but in the back where it says nutritional facts is where the FDA and the USDA regulates. So I always tell them what you see in the front is just something of a design and you know, just kind of market <laughs> you in, but in the back is where the meat is, what you want to learn more about. Where's the beef? It's in the back. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the back. So first thing I tell them is that look at the serving size, because you probably might notice that a lot of products, serving size is not saying that the whole product is this amount. It's only a small portion. Mm -hmm. And once people realize that, wow, you mean to tell me that all this with the sodium, the fat, the saturated fat, the cholesterol. It's for six crackers. That's it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Not the whole rack. Yeah. (laughs) And they sell them in the packs and that's even more confusing because you take it out of those small little packs and then you think, okay, so this is like smaller. So it's going to be made to be a serving size. Yeah. It's not the serving size. You have to actually break it down even for then what do you talked about? After the serving size, where are we at now, Ms. Rogers? Well, after that, then I tell them, I said, next thing is underneath it. You can look at the calories and the calories per serving. So that's what you have to think about. The serving size is telling you what it is per serving. And once they realize that, they're like, wow, this thing got 400 calories or this thing got about 600 calories. I did not even know it based on that serving amount. And then I talked to them about the saturated fat, the trans fat and the cholesterol. Once they look at that, they realize that some of them are in grams and milligrams. And I think that that's a little confusing because a lot of people metric system and everything. So you got to go use math and everything. But I try to make it as easy as possible for them to understand. I tell them, just make sure that the saturated fat, the trans fat, cholesterol are close to zero. Mm-hmm. They said, well, where's the fat? I said, the fat's still there, but it's a lot less because you want more of the monounsaturated fats, which are like your olive oil, your canola oil. Avocado oil. Right, exactly. So you want ones that are more healthier. So that's the one that you want the highest number of not the saturated fat, trans fat, and cholesterol. 
And then I explained to them what is saturated fat, what is trans fat, and what is cholesterol. I explained to them in detail what the difference are of those items. And then they get an idea, oh, so this food item has this amount of saturated fat, or this food item has this amount of cholesterol. So again, idea or visual idea of what it is. And then I also tell them, because I know carbs got bad rap. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> they do, and they're not all bad. Right. You need carbs to survive. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Every person I've spoken to that says, well, I don't eat carbs, but I'm craving for cookies and candy, and I sneak them out. And I said, because your body uses carbs first as fuel, and then it uses protein, and the last thing it uses is fat. So if you take something out, it's going to try to find a way to replace it. Mm -hmm. So I talked to him about the grams of carbohydrates. What is one serving, which is 15 grams of carbs, and then tell them how many carbs that they're allowed for each meal. And then I also told about the dietary fiber, which is very important too. You want to aim for it to be about at least three grams or more based on the serving size amount. So the reason why is that is that's a moderate to high fiber product when you do it based on that. And then I also talk about the sodium. I think that that's been a big misnomer because a lot of people say, well, I try to make sure that I have zero sodium. That it's very hard to find products that are manufactured that have zero sodium. So 140 milligrams based on the serving size is a low sodium product and under. Wow, you're so knowledgeable. And I could see why your website, livinghealthy.org, you offer so many services. So before we even wrap up today, can you go into what you offer patients and why they can come to you and seek out your services? Yeah, sure. I always tell people that my practice is basically evidence-based research practice because I know some people think that, okay, integrated functional medicine, they think, oh, it's kind of... Hippie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just say what it is. Yep. That's what they say. It doesn't work. You rub your hand on a crystal, it's going to make you feel better. It's not that. Exactly. No, it's not like that. So all of my information and research I do in my practice is all evidence, practice-based research. I do cover about whole foods, meaning like probiotics and prebiotics and basically clean eating, just getting people to eat the food originally as a source. I do talk a little bit about supplements and also I do talk about mindful eating, being mindful. I do discuss about that. For those who have digestive health, I talk to them about the different ways that you can help out your digestive system, just getting an idea of knowing about the digestive system. For those who have inflammation, I definitely talk about those phytonutrient types of foods. So, and then also talk about stress management. I also talk about those too. So I try to incorporate a lot of the integrative functional medicine types of ways into my private practice. And if anyone wants to know more about that, they can definitely check out my site too. Like I said, I do look at the person as a whole, not as individual parts whenever I see a patient. That's important. That's really important. How do you counsel your patients about how to change their families? Because when you're seeing someone not change their families, but also adjust what they're doing, I always tell my patients, because my patients are young, their parents are like, yeah, they eat this and they eat that. And I say, well, who's bringing that food into their home? It's you who's going to the grocery store and buying it. So how do you also get buy-in from the community? Like, how do you get buy-in from their family community? Do you ever sit down with their family to just speak with them about why it's important to also empower this person and to support this person on their food journey? Because it usually takes more than one person to keep someone on track. Like, it's great that they come and see you. It's great that they come and see me. It's great that they go and see Ebony. Well, who are the people they're going home with? Right. I always ask them, who is the one who prepares your meals? That's the gatekeeper. 
that's the main person that you want to speak to and you want to have them involved in there. Like there's a lot of husbands that tell me, well, my wife is the one, but she can't come. I said, well, let's make time for her to come Mm -hmm. because she needs to know. I said, even though if I tell you, it might not work because she's the one who cooks your meals and this vice versa. Like the husband may be cooking the meals for the wife and the wife says, well, my husband don't want to come. I said, well, let's wait until he comes. Let's encourage him to come. If he wants you to have better health, then he needs to come if he's cooking your meals. That's the thing you want to know who is the gatekeeper of cooking and preparing the meals and have them to come as a unit together. And then you educate them. And not only that, you also, if they have kids, I encourage them to come to the session too, because they need to know, because when they're out the house, who knows what they might be eating or sneaking in. They need to understand why mom and dad cooks this way or why mom and dad wants to have better health. A lot of kids don't know that. They just think that, you know, they eat whatever their peers are, you know, their friends are doing and they friends go to McDonald's all the time. They go there and they eat there. But the parents may say, well, you don't go to McDonald's to eat and they'll explain them to them why and what health kind of implications that can happen later on in the future. Because right now, kids only think about what's going on in the present a lot of time. And sometimes some of them don't look at the future right now. That's the thing is important to involve the whole entire family and the whole entire community because there are some cultures where the whole entire community is involved in their decision-making and their eating habits also too. It's important to involve everybody in the picture of learning about nutrition, dietetics too. So, Right, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ms. Rogers, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. We appreciate everything that you do for your patients. You're doing amazing work. And we appreciate you coming to educate just a little bit of our listeners on what I think we're going to definitely dive into this topic a little bit more when it comes to individual specific disease processes. So hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, stroke, and how nutrition can change their health in general, because food is medicine. But we appreciate you and we appreciate everything you're doing. And if you want to learn more about Ms. Rogers in her journey as a nutritionist and licensed dietitian, you can look her up on Living Healthy. You will see a broad array of all the services that she offers and can provide you or a family member that you love. Any last words, Ms. Rogers, for the listeners about food, about health, and about why food is medicine? Well, I know that we're going towards the holiday season. I always tell people to enjoy yourselves, be safe, and just be aware of what you're eating and don't worry about it. Just enjoy the holidays. Enjoy the food that you're eating. And just remember, after you finish eating, go for a walk. (laughs) Right. Those are the simple things. You know, honestly, my family started to implement that at our Thanksgivings about 10 years ago where we all go for a week. And it's easier when you have a dog, right? Because the dog is getting the food scraps too. Another hack that I tell my patients is to not fill their plates. Mm-hmm. You can eat and you can have a little bit of everything, but you don't need to fill your plate at the same time. And really, like you said, Miss Rogers, going for a 30 to 40 minute walk afterwards or doing a little bit of light activity, throwing the ball around, that will help your digestive process in such a way that you cannot even imagine. It will help keep you on track. Do some psychology, eat on a smaller plate. Think about what you're doing when you're eating. Are y'all sitting down watching the game while you're eating? Or are you eating and being intentional yeah, about eating? intentional about it. Yeah. So when you're watching a game, you're not really conscious. It's like when you're eating, when you're studying. You're not conscious when you're eating that way. And so when you're sitting down for your meals, enjoy your family, engage in the conversation, and be conscious of what you're putting on your plate. And if you really want it, or is it your eyes that want it? 
Or are you getting it because Aunt so-and-so made it and you don't want to offend her? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That was for the community. (laughs) If that's the case, bring a doggy bag home. Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, this is so good. I want to take it with me. Exactly. (laughs) So thank you, Miss Rogers, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Cure for the Culture. And thank you, Ebony, my amazing co-host. For Any last words, Eb? Thank you, Nia. No, it's always a pleasure. All right, everybody. Have a great night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cure the Culture with Ebony Gadsden and Nia Phillips. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us at cureforculture at gmail.com. Remember, the opinions expressed on this show, although research-based, are strictly conversational. All healthcare decisions should be discussed with your treating provider. Until next time, be safe, be well, be informed. Subscribe for a seat at the table with Ebony and Nia every other Friday at 8 p.m.